Hey, this is Sully from the band Theft to the Gallows, REB Records, and this is my What the Punk podcast. Yeah, this album is dedicated to all the teachers that told me I never amount to nothing. To all the people that lived above the buildings that I was hustling from that called the police on me when I was just trying to make some money to feed my daughter. Yeah, yeah. And to all my peoples in the struggle, you know what I'm saying? It's all good, baby, baby. Check it, check it. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Something pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack Mr. Magic Molly Mall. I let my tape rock till my tape pop. Smoking weed and bamboo, sipping on private stock. Way back when I had the red and black lumberjack with the hat to match. Remember rapping Duke? The hard, the hard. You never thought that hip hop would take it this far. Now I'm in the limelight cause I rhyme tight Time to get paid, blow up like the world trade Born sinner, the opposite of a winner Remember when I used to eat sardines for dinner Peace to Raw G, Brucey B, Kid Capri Funk Master Flex, Love Bug, Star Ski I'm blowing up like you thought I would Call a crib, same number, same hood It's all good uh. And if you don't know, now you know, you know Close and personal with Robin Leach yeah. And I'm far from cheap, I smoke stuff with my peeps all day Spread love, it's the Brooklyn way The Moet and Alizé keep me pissy Girls used to diss me, now they write letters cause they miss me I never thought it could happen, this rapping stuff I was too used to packing ice and stuff Now honeys play me close like butter play toast From the Mississippi down to the East Coast Condos and Queens, in dough for weeks Sold out seats to hear Biggie Small speak Living life without fear Putting five carrots in my baby girl ear Lunches, brunches, interviews by the fool Considered a fool cause I dropped out of high school Stereotypes of a black male misunderstood And it's still all good, uh And if you don't know, now you know, you know Genesis. When I was dead broke, man, I couldn't picture this. 50 inch screen, money green, leather sofa. Got two rides, a limousine with the chauffeur. Phone bill about two G's flat. No need to worry, my accountant handles that. And my whole crew is lounging. Celebrating every day, no more public housing. Thinking back on my one room shack. Now my mom pimps a act with minks on the back. And she loves to show me off, of course. Smiles every time my face is up in the source. We used to fuss when the landlord dissed us. No heat. Wonder why Christmas missed us. Birthdays was the worst days. Now we sip champagne when we thirsty. Uh, damn right, I like the life I live. Cause I went from negative to positive, and it's all. And if you don't know, now you know, you know, you know. And if you don't know, now you know, you know, you know, you know. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right.
know, you know. Let the beat sound in the house. Junior Mafia, Mad Flavor. Uh. I see you, uh. I see you. I see you. Yeah. I. You know, Sally, I know you think you have all five narrow diversities, but I'm going to trump you with my ADHD, sucker, so suck it. <laughs> I got it real bad. You think you got it, artist boy? <laughs> you know, I just, there's, there's probably going to come a time in life where we realize, like, oh, we were so misinformed to be um, labeling people with all of these. I mean, granted, I think labels are really helpful because it gives us information to then examine, you know, but, um, but also I'm biased being a healthcare provider. Um, but I think like, like we also don't want to be limited by the labels because the labels are only indicative of what we know at a certain point in time. (laughs) And if we only live up to that limit of what we know at a certain point in time, we're not expanding beyond what we continue to learn and grow with. And that's a problem. Yeah. But but we put labels on everything. I mean, I mean, it's part of our way of, like, we do that to, like, our brains do that. Like, we want to make sense of things, and it makes sense. But, like, when it comes to, like, psychological labels and diagnostic, you know, like, uh, uh, diagnostic labeling, like, you know, if a person isn't recognized for their intellectual abilities because somebody's focusing on their their problem with dyslexia or focusing on their problem with ADHD, they're not looking at the whole human picture. They're looking at the problem. And the problem then becomes the definition of that person's ability or, or potential. Oh, but it also, but no, hold on. It also defines helpful. them as a person, though. It also makes them feel like there's actually something wrong with them. You're defining them saying, hey, you're the dyslexic one or you're the one with ADHD. Again, mm-hmm. because we say that these things are disorders. Right. And by, Absolutely. And by labeling a disorder, that's a disorder because then you're, you're tagging people. You know, and I think young people, I mean, I wish somebody pulled me into school when I was in, you know, 1985 in grade school and said, listen, you got some OEs. Here's the deal. You're seeing the world different. You're seeing the world differently. You're not going to learn very well the way we do things here. So suck it up till you get to college and and life will change for you. Or here's one. You're didactic. Do it yourself. Read a book. Process it. Write some songs about it. You'll feel a lot better about yourself and you won't feel like such an idiot. You know, I just wish that even, and I don't expect schools or businesses, I'm not naive, that everybody, I mean, you couldn't do it. You can't have a herd education system or corporate conglomerate system to to have people work and learn in and create on a, on a corp- corporate platform while saying, well, you need special attention. But I think we could do a better right. job of pulling somebody out and saying, you know, just, you know, I think you got some, some narrow diversities, just a heads up, and there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> you know, it just, you don't fit into this, into this mold. So deal with it. 
I mean, a million percent. Like, like there's an overexcitabilities questionnaire, or there's several of them that are available, but, like, when we look at those traits and we can recognize the dominance, the dominant traits, traits within us or where we tend to experience more predominant discomfort or more predominant ways of self-soothing or regulating by examining our our excitabilities or intensities, that gives us information of how to better navigate the world in a way that feels good as opposed to having to, like, you know, steal oneself up and and deal with the world as though it's imposing on your being in a way that uh, requires, like, survival of the world as opposed to thriving in the world. So, does that make sense? No, it does. So you're. I want. I want to move on from this in a second, but I want you to sure. answer my question because I don't. I don't mm-hmm. want. I'm going to take the ADHD card mm-hmm. off the table. Let's just take it off okay. the table. So, how many adults are out there that have no idea that they're wired like this because it was never brought up? They were just the antsy kid or the the person that's the daydreamer. Or you know you just you're just really emotional. Yeah. You're just really emotional, and it's worse for it's worse. It's stereotypical for guys too. God forbid you're a guy that cries during a movie, right? Even now in this day and age, right. you know people talk about. Here's one, and and, and I'm not busting on anybody, but <laughs> the LG. Uh, I can't even say it. LGBT. Yeah, culture gets a pass, but us white straight guys that are crying during Brokeback Mountain, you know, like, come on, man, I'm a sensitive guy, you know, and I do, my kids, I'll be reading something and I'll, I'll like tear up and my... My daughter's like, Dad, it's Garfield. And I'm like, I know, but it's, <laughs> it's striking a chord with me, you know? Exactly. And we're not, we still have these crazy machismo um, viewpoints on, on, on guys, you know? And mm-hmm. it's, it's really, fr- and it's, here's what's interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a disservice. To masculinity, and it's a service to humanity to continue to propagate these uh, antiquated understandings of human emotional expression. Honestly, it's contributing to toxic masculinity in our population globally. It's vile, honestly. And it's also oh, oh, you're saying stagnating gl- evolution. Even now, you're saying even now globally, not just here in America, you're talking about this. This is it, it's a species. It's a species wide illness. That like patriarchy is like a species wide sociocultural problem that is affecting our evolution as beings, as conscious, sentient creatures. That's my personal opinion. Sorry. But but sentience sentience means it's it's in you, you're born that way. Meaning like it's it's yeah. it's the knowledge that it's already in you. That we're pre-wired, yes. basically is what you're saying, predetermined to think these things. We're predetermined to feel feelings and have emotional reactions to them or cry when moved or when that chord is struck. You know, just the way that when it, you hear the right chord and the right lyric, you're, you can be moved to tears or you can sing or you can rage or you can feel your feelings and you're grateful that that artist has brought that music into your awareness so that you can be alive in that space and it, it reflects how you feel or it, it resonates with, what you experience and what you wanted to say. That is, we, we've all had a feeling like that where we connected with, or where the chords that were struck in us were affected by some kind of stimulation out in the world. And emotion is one of the, those ways that we 
take in information, that we react and understand ourselves in the, in the world with, and with others. And when you're saying, like, um, if I'm reading Garfield and a chord is stuck in me, or if I'm listening to a news brief and a chord is stuck in me, or if I am standing in a single blade of grass blooming next to a brand new spring bulb, is, uh, I'm sorry, grass doesn't bloom, but like a flower is blooming next to fresh spring grass, that we are touched by the beauty of nature and life prevailing in the spring after the harsh winter, or we are touched by the opportunity of seeing nature uh, growing while we are in a species-wide um, uh, extinction possibility, you know, like our extinction event in terms of the global pandemic. Like, that chord being struck is us resonating with light as, as living beings in concert with the living world that, we, that supports us. And our society, and, and what you're saying is that, but our society that we are, are again, I'm coming up with construct, the thing that we've constructed, mm-hmm. our construct, is, is killing that, that sentient, prescient um, instinct. Absolutely. I mean, like, capitalism, I think, is anti-human in nature. And I think that's part of, like, if we look at the profit motive over collective good being a model that our species has identified as, you know, the way to success, um, it's actually, that's, that's a lie or it's an illusion. Um, and it's, it's coming at the cost of our habitat and our and human life. Okay, so I got two things here. I'm gonna I'm gonna backtrack and then I'm gonna, <laughs> sorry. I'm gonna, I'm gonna here. I think that was a tangent too. Sorry. No, no. I. It's all about. <laughs> that's what podcasts are. They're all about tangents. So because that's where I think people start talking versus you know answering bullet point questions. You know, what was your greatest mm. influence? Right. You know, we want to have <laughs> we want to have that conversation. So in the '70s, when punk was kicking off, like or the mid '60s up through, the punk artists. On the Lower East Side, uh, David Bowie, uh, Iggy Pop, when he was in town, and, and um, when he, also when he was in Germany with with David Bowie, uh, Didi Ramone, um, guys from uh, Lou Reed. These guys were having heterosexual relationships, homosexual relationships. They had no problem going out and saying, like, you know, I'm going to hook up today. There was a cross-pollination of straight gay in the punk scene as well as cross-dressing with um, transvestites, uh, with people that were thinking about much like Dog Day Afternoon, right? That this is, here we go, looking for the, the transsexual for the sex change. And... These, if, I, if I could just, if I could just use this a moment as a moment for please, education a little bit, because like some of these terms are really antiquated and pejorative, and um, fix it, I'm fix cringing. me, fix me. Yeah, don't let let's drop transvestite from the vocabulary of the modern world. Um, it's 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 a fetishistic term that is usually pejorative and in understanding feminine expression from a male person. Um, Give me another so word. Think Give me another word. Uh, uh, gender fluid could be used, you know, um, gender queer. Um, uh, uh, if a person is transgender, that's different than, um, I think like just to go back, like David Bowie and these individuals definitely were pioneers in, um, breaking the binaries around what it means to express masculinity. God bless them for that. And thank you nature for showing diversity emerging in that form, um, from that form, allows us to break the binary of gender constructs being masculine or feminine as the only options for human behavior, which is actually a limitation as we come to see by only 
using these constructs of male-female and only holding on to um, uh, two points of expression, there's so much in between that is then either deviant or misunderstood or, um, or suppressed or, in some cases, uh, uh, targeted and persecuted intentionally because of that difference. Um, and so just like just moving away from the past where people have been are continuing to be actually as we, I mean this is still an ongoing issue of human rights violation for transgender individuals or for individuals who are um, who are challenging old ways of understanding masculinity and femininity and and creating a broader spectrum of options for expression and gender. Um, so just those the terms like, that have been known to be um, uh, associated with with uh, with hurting these individuals or dehumanizing them are words that I would just avoid. And so, uh, the processing that you're describing a behavior. Well, no, well, what, what I was well, I, let me let me. I wasn't actually yeah. talking about Bowie as an artist. He would he would basically have sexual relations like that they, they oh, yeah. like visibly like actually identified himself as bisexual as was a lot of these artists at the time and i was just using the the jargon from the time because that's how it was described it's true. And, and i apologize for that that's not my my intent to be disrespectful but i guess what i'm saying i'm not looking at them as artists i mean as far as like what they're doing on stage what i'm saying was in their spare time they were all going out and Hanging out in a gay with with uh, gay people and lesbians yeah. and straight people and people that were exploring their sexuality and they were all in this incubator, much like you were talking about in in Miami. Miami. And yeah. th there's something about that exploration that's been overlooked, and a lot of that went to the the scene of the bands performing or I don't, I don't want to go down that I, road, but that, that's all I'm saying is that, and I, that and I, th I thank you. I thank you for like receiving that because I really just want to also make sure that like it's a conversation that's being had at a broader level with, with terms that are supportive. And I also think like certainly those were the terms of the time. <laughs> so like, there's no reason to, there's no need to apologize for that. But I, and I think also just like, I don't want to um, focus only on gender and avoid what you're saying about um, sexual liberation as well and sexual openness and that 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 pioneering period of time as well that created space for people to experience their bodies differently, experience relationships differently, experience sexuality in a more healthy and less um, religiously affected way of uh, that, like without shame or without judgment, but more without exploration and connection. Um, across boundaries of gender, across boundaries of orientation, uh, across boundaries of uh, social institutions like monogamy. Well, I think there's there, at, during that time also, but I, I don't think that's exclusive even to that time because you can go back to the Greeks with, mm -hmm. you know, they used uh, lords and uh, uh, upper class. In, in the Greek society, use pedestry with with younger teens as a way for for personal gratification, but also for to let let somebody know that hey, I'm your master right now, and then you're going to move on from there. And you might be, you know, um, a student for somebody uh, in Greek society to, to this gentleman, and you would perform sexual favors as a way 
for payments, and then after you learn your trade, you would move on, and they call that and they would call that pedestry. I think that in in human society, there's always been a we focus too much, and we always have. And I think that's this is what fascinates me about the punk scene specifically, and what it was born from. You don't hear about a folk scene where it was. You hear a lot about civil rights and equality, but you're talking about racial equality. You're not talking about there. There's a thing where, hey, I think your your soul looks attractive. You're a guy. I'm a guy, and I. Let's let's have a blowjob. Let's just go and have fun together and enjoy each other's bodies and explore together. And mm-hmm. these guys were doing that. The women were doing that also. And I think... But fun fact, most people do that, whether they acknowledge it or not. Fun fact. Yes. We call that uh, exploration and adolescence. <laughs> but there's also nothing wrong with exploration as an adult if you've never had that opportunity for that exploration. Absolutely. Don't knock it till you try it. I guess, and so what I'm saying is, right? I mean, come on. But when you look at, but when you look at these, the overexcitabilities, it sounds like you're describing artists who are dialed in centrally, intellectually, imaginationally, emotionally, and if you're performing on stage, psychomotorily, right? And you're also open to. New areas of sexuality, and you're not hung up on the same constraints that normal what what normal society is or says is is a constraint. Mm-hmm. I think that's another beautiful example of sensual um, of the sensual intensity uh, being in the outlier range of that spectrum. Do you know what I mean? Like when you were willing to use your body and experience your body in ways that um, that feel good, you know, that, that you're, you're moving in the direction of feeling good because you can use the information that your body is, is experiencing as a guide as to um, what feels right to you, what makes you feel more alive. I mean, a lot of times at the height of an orgasm, for example, people will feel like, you know, they're transcending into a spiritual place. Um, aside from death, I think that's the only experience where people report that kind of um, or falling in love at times, I think, can feel like that. But really, like transcending physiologically, somatically, emotionally, um, all at once, that tends to be a way that people experience orgasm. Um, for the person who's essentially dominant uh, or essentially overexcitable individual, their physical stimulation is going to be a heightened way of the way that they navigate the world. So, so sexual exploration would be a natural way or a natural uh, expression of that dominance or that uh, predominant characteristic if that's, their, if that's their way of exploring or experiencing the world. Um, and I think sexuality is a, na- a sexual uh, liberation or sexual freedom around sexuality or not being confined to a fixed orientation could be another way that that is expressed in outlier populations. Do you think that narrowly diverse people tend to be more open sexually? Um, you know, social socialization really plays a lot or, or plays a strong role in what people think is allowed for themselves. And 
um, without like the like say without the influence of of religion or without the influence of socialization or social norms, would more people be gender fluid or um, flexible in their orient their expression of sexual orientation? I I think so. I think that that's if we look at nature, that's a variation or a characteristic of natural variation that enhances species survival. And so if we're looking at it from that lens, of course there's gonna be some people that move away from the heterosexual experience because it creates the opportunity for human survival in some capacity in certain environmental conditions or in certain situations. Um, and we see it across species, so it's universal. We see it across time. So it has been a part of human history as long as humans have been in existence. That to me is indicated that it's more than just um, it's a trait that is affected or inhibited or oppressed by religious uh, influence or social norms or cultural um, uh, cultural beliefs or preferences or practices that uh, limit expression on that domain. It's I always find it interesting that you have groups of people that will follow a a, a religious a religion or a belief system, but they're not necessarily sure why they're following it or the history of that belief system. And then when you actually try to break it down, they're like, no, I don't believe that. You know, I've always found it interesting that really hardcore, I'd say African-American uh, Christians are very, tend to be very anti-gay. And I find that crazy that you would have a culture of people that are saying that has some sort of dis discrimination to it, but then say, hey, I was discriminated against, right? And I can, I'm just using that as an example. I mean, you, you could use other examples mm -hmm. as well. And I find that really fascinating. I, I don't know how, how do you, and I don't know if that's something where you're like, you know, I'm just, this is helps me live my life without having to deal with certain, because maybe does that open up the door to, have to deal with yourself, and you're like, you know what? Mm. I can't deal with this. I mean, it's that positive disintegration where you're just like, I can't go. Mm. I'm not going to go there because if I do, I'm going to have to really reveal some things about myself that I don't want to do, so I'm going to hold on to this. You know, I think, oh, so many, so much, so much, so much in that sentence. Um, uh, and you could tell me I'm full of shit. Just so you know, no, no, no. I, I, I agree with you. I, I agree with you, and it's heartbreaking, honestly, to um, see the uh, homophobia in the African American community. Um, I'm biracial, and um, I feel like it's a triple threat to be, especially if you're a gay woman, to be an African American gay woman. It's like you have every minority possibility box to check, <laughs> and there's not a place of acceptance in any community where you are 100. Um, percent Oh my God, you did it again! Uh, you did it again! You know? Oh my God, you have the ADHD card. You're I can't take it. <laughs> but I mean, you know what? I think like there's a, a like like. This is a time where we're seeing the importance of diversity um, in all walks and manners of being as a way of contributing to the narratives of human experience, you know? And so whether it's biracial or, or um, blended cultural uh, individuals or um, people who have taken different walks from uh, spiritual paths or religious paths and exploration in that domain, or, um, I mean, 
we're really seeing a lot of like the intersection of uh, ways of existing, whether it's gender orientation, race, uh, class, educational backgrounds, uh, religious and spiritual backgrounds, starting to be questioned or um, like I just like the idea of breaking the boundary. You know, like we're we're starting to really. Um, question why we have limited ourselves to certain concepts that are man-made or man-created and um or like yeah i guess i'll say man-made but like i don't just mean masculine in, in this way but i but i guess i do but i don't but um <laughs> but these are human created ideas that we have turned into facts about being and it limits our way of being fully human especially in certain populations and by the emergence of more and more people sharing their narratives or more and more people coming together and creating blended families or having blended cultural experiences these narratives are showing just how globally universal our species is we are we are so different on the outside, but we are so we're all the same on the inside, you know. And if we can recognize those traits instead of using all of these ways or con- like citizenship or money or status or socioeconomic or you know religious identification or all of these concepts that we've created for division, if we could recognize man-made concepts and that we have a choice whether or not we allow that to divide us. To me, I feel like that would be actually moving in the direction of conscious evolution as opposed to or conscious betterment or spiritual alignment with a higher purpose or, as Maslow would say, self-actualization. It's moving away from those things that limit our infinite potential and embracing the flexibility and the possibility that is not limited to labels. Yeah.
A lot of movements, right? There are, in my opinion. <laughs> okay, so in my opinion, you know. <laughs> I, I love, it. I love people say that. I knew that was your opinion. I absolutely knew that was your opinion. Um, I find that the movements that arise, right? And I'll just deal with some episodes that I talked about. Would be like you know the Vietnam War protests, Black Panthers. Uh, you know, the March on Washington, Martin Luther King, where we can talk about, I mean, we can just go through uh, the SDS. Uh, in my last epi- a couple episodes ago, I talked about the weather underground. And when you have people saying, no, I don't like the way this is, and a scene emerges, right? Either a march or a, a music scene, like like the punk scene or the folk scene or, or whatever it might be. Um but that's because there's a foil. So are we, by having a society where like, hey man, maybe we don't need any religion, maybe we don't need anything, maybe we should just have everything free and easy, we're taking away the thing that would actually push you to have meaning. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that was the, the uh, you had actually given me this book, and I've, I've already quoted in another episode, The Closing of the American Mind by, by, by Alan Bloom, and I'm just, I'm just, I'm destroying it. And, you know, he talks about open-ended futures where when kids aren't, uh, I'll say it this way. If you grow up in a super religious household and you're like, this is what you believe, this is the way it is. So it gives that person grew up in that household an option. You can either buy into it, or which will give you a self-identity, or you can reject it. So it goes two ways. And by you having to choose, 
it gives you an identity. But when you take that away and say, eh, whatever, whatever you want to be, it's cool. All of a sudden, you're kind of like wishy-washy or adrift. You don't, you have actually no identity because you didn't have to choose something. Mm-hmm. You know, so and, and that's like a loss. Like you can see that, like that that echoes in a person, like um, like a sense of aimlessness or lostness or disillusionment or disconnection from one's authentic purpose. So, did you ever have that? I mean, did you have like for me? It was you know I bought into before I became tried to go down the road of being a songwriter and giving myself over to the muse. I did follow the you know what I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get that job, which is the same old story most Americans have these days, and get to that point where I'm like I am just wasting my life, and I had to rebel against against that. And I remember my dad's reaction was, "Are you kidding? You're going to give up a good job to to." You don't play an instrument. You don't. What are you gonna do? And I said, I just feels like it's the thing I'm supposed to do, which was really, oh, wow. which based in his eyes was stupid and risky. And you know, but I'm glad I made that decision because it shaped everything in my life, and I lived a really a painful but yet joyful life. That's been I've it's been completely a surprise, and so. Have you had anything like that where where you've like, you know what, I'm actually, I, I succumbed to this, and now I'm like, you know what, no way, no way. You, you know, um, that's so funny. I just so much to say there. I'm reminding you to read you this quote that I read this morning about what you're saying that, that you experienced with your dad when you decided to choose your own path. But okay. um, to answer the question about myself, like, you know, um, I self-disclosed that I have ADHD as well, and so... I have to say, in this moment of my life, I am thankful for the ADHD, even though it was quite chaotic when it was undiagnosed as a young adolescent. But um, because I was, because I had a hard time conforming in general as a human being across categories, um, there's not a lot. I don't ha- I can't do things that I don't like. Like I, I mean, it's not that I can't do them. It's just that I have a high level of resistance and unwillingness to engage for long periods of time in activities of disinterest. In fact, it really causes a lot of dysregulation or disinterest or agitation in my personal, um, in my per- in my person at those moments. And so I couldn't have like for me as a person, um, it would have been like eating glass for choice to like to try to do accounting or some kind of um, profession that wasn't in line with my talents or abilities when it wasn't true to my interests. Um, so, so, and I also come from a family of, of, you know, many generations of ADHD on both sides. So, um, so I think I didn't have some of those ingrained um, messages about you can only attain success if you follow this formula that involves compromising your soul. You know, um, my family was like, you can do anything, go forward and try to figure it out. Good luck. You know? <laughs> right. So, you, so they're, 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 they're we all... We can't guarantee that we can help you with everything, but we believe you can do what you want to do. So I appreciate that because um, what I was good at was being with people and understanding emotion and, and like being comfortable in the... In, in presence of heightened emotion and being able to interpret or translate or, or, uh, or negotiate... Um, but I think mostly I can interpret and translate for people when they're when they're in that space and help facilitate communication and connection. And so, you know, by eighth grade, I was like, you know, what if people figure out what they want to do? I thought writing or um, 
advertising would be a path for me. But as I got into school and was starting to understand like formal education, um, uh, marketing wasn't for me. <laughs> it was, um, it, I was much more interested in the human behavior. And so I, I followed where my passion felt the most stimulated because I think that's where ADHD works against me, but also works for me. Like, because I have very limited ability to attend in areas of disinterest, I'm not motivated to spend time developing a skill in an area that I don't, like, that I'm not passionate about. Um, so that's not helpful when you need to study for the ACT and you need to do well in areas of, uh, you know, certain domains that are academically expected. But it is helpful when you need to choose a life path. It is helpful to know, like, hey, I'm not good at this or I hate this or I'm not willing to expand my skill set in that domain because the reward is not as meaningful as the expanding in this creative area where I am able to bring more of my full self and talents naturally to that expansion as opposed to having to uh, build something out of nothing. Because I think, you know, we're evolved to capitalize on our unique individual strengths. That's the point of variation. You know, that's the point of a genetic recombination in such a unique way that an individual is created. It's like unlike any other individual that exists, you know? And, um, and for me, that led me to psychology, thank goodness, because it was a place where um, there's so many different ways of thinking about humans, about behavior, about emotion, that I could choose from a range of teachers and be influenced by a range of teachers instead of one ideology or one uh, way of doing things, which would never have been uh, sufficiently satisfying for me. Um, does that make sense? No, and I think you said the word ide- uh, not to adhere to one ideology, and I think that's what I would say is that sometimes... So you... So you, so you grew up in, in a household where you didn't have one ideology, and I grew up in one where I where I did, you know. And so I guess I think you answered my question when I said, "Do we need necessarily need to have one ideology to rebel against?" Clearly, no. You need to have, you know. In, in a weird way, I I, I agree sometimes with Alan Bloom because he said, "Like that's going to be the the impetus for you to make a decision," and. You were mm-hmm. you were you were able to make a decision without an ideology. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it, it kind of open. I don't want to say you didn't have an ideology, but what I'm saying is like you had it open. You kind of were like, you know, it sounds like you can do whatever you want to do. We all have these issues. Figure it out. And you're like, okay, you know, and and maybe. <laughs> There's a lot. There's, there's very little structure in that um, approach as a parent in that parenting approach. And I think while that was. It had, it's a mixed bag, right? Like for some adolescents with ADHD, structure is a critical component of being able to uh, emerge into adulthood like in a functional, independent way. Um, and um, for me, I think the absence of structure benefited me, and maybe because of the uh, twice exceptional characteristics of being gifted in and um, ADHD at the same time, like it might not have been helpful during certain developmental periods of my adolescence, but as an adult, it has allowed me to not be at all limited or confined to uh, uh, belief structures or, or limiting um, uh, groupthink kinds of ideologies that I think would have made me conform away parts of myself at different points. So I've, I've been comfortable. Well, I mean, I don't think it's comfortable. Maybe it's like getting comfortable with this with the uncomfortable, but like being an outlier role has been part of my existence being a biracial kid in America, right? But being an outlier oh, that, that, That's your ideology then. 
That was your ideology. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Okay, I just got to find it. So it, it was you being a biracial kid. But I just looked me apart. You know, my my it gave me information about the world in terms of race and ethnicity and um, and cultural background or acculturation. But um, but I'm also a woman. I feel like that is a huge piece of my experience of the world as well and my understanding of human relationships and uh, and human nature as well. Um, uh, I love science. I love that it can you can look at life forms and see the evolution of of design of creation. And I think that's beautiful and miraculous and it observes me wholly when I am in that space and I can connect with with living with life and and, the, and like in that space that's I think bigger than both my descriptive characteristics or demographics you know um I also think like not having like my mom was somebody who was um raised in a very uh, Christian experience of the world um but she was also interested in different teachers and so we were never only exposed to one way of understanding spirituality or understanding uh, uh holy closeness with god or um recognizing divinity in in, in in living in living beings and recognizing divinity in the world and in, and i think those are the kinds of things that have been helpful because they were not so rigidly confined that i feel the difference when I'm in the presence of something that is rigid and confining versus open to exploration. And that's kind of like, I guess, being open. You know, as I'm saying this, there's a quote by Rumi where he says, I belong to no religion. My religion is love and every heart is my temple. I don't know if you know Rumi the poet. That's a great quote. That's a great quote. I love him. Can you read that again? Can you read that again? Yeah. Rumi says, I belong to no religion. My religion is love. And every heart is my temple. I'm down with that. Bob Dylan has a similar saying where he says he doesn't adhere to poets or uh, priests or rabbis or politicians. He, he believes the songs. And the songs, mm. the songs are his guides. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's along those lines. And I haven't written one of my lyric books. And yeah, I, I think that, that when we really hard for people to be open and was that the quote you're going to read me was that was that the quote or was that a oh name? no I, what's your oh, other that quote? Was just one that, that's just one of my heart um um the other one was comes from a book um that i revisit called the gifted adult by mary lane jacobson um i was actually reading it this morning just because i'm trying to understand i don't understand um when people are so like uh, negative about quarantining and like willing to protest their way back into a workplace that is not necessarily safe. Like I was having a hard time understanding that without being so baffled and like triggered a little bit. So I went back to try to understand like the evolution of intelligence to see like what is happening right now. But one of the things that um, I was reading kind of speaks to what you were saying about like you went through the experience of conforming um, in terms of a career path with your dad, but then you realize that a point where you had to listen to your internal song and move in the direction of that to be a satisfied, happy, healthy human being, you know, and and to be able to use your talents and your gifts for collective benefit, you know, or for the greater benefit. And when we're in alignment in that space, we are, we are, I think, being true to our purpose. We're being true, if you choose to believe in God, we're being true to uh, those God-given gifts or those that natural way of wiring that we have that allows us to offer something 
not only to the world, but to our families and to our relationships and to ourselves, you know? Um, and so the quote was this, like, the next step in, um, human, in the evolution of human intelligence relies on our advanced development. The third element that acts as a keystone to lock together the foundational elements on which evolutionary intelligence lies. Um, so the, the, she was talking about characteristics of human vision, mandated mission, and revolutionary action all work together in concert with intelligence um, and giftedness as the cornerstone of unconventional breakthrough of intelligence and examining that. Um, she says, like, when the spiral... Sorry, scratch that. Um, so, in, 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 like, you know, when we were talking earlier, like, people look at giftedness as a trait, and they're kind of like, oh, this is associated with, like, superiority or eliteness, and, um, and it's kind of viewed in a negative scheme like that. What she was saying that, like, when when we look at this spiral of evolution building on these other areas of being in touch with a humanistic vision and a mandated mission and revolutionary action, um, when the spiral of evolution of intelligence is added to the ability formula or cognitive ability formula, people of high potential are able to stand away from feelings of guilt, selfishness, grandiosity, and inhibition. You can learn to support yourself and what you believe about what you can actually accomplish gradually. And then this moves away from possibly to probably to naturally as people start to accept that their special gifts are not about being superior or using using those gifts in ways to have power over other people rather it's alignment with the recognition and accountability to the duty one has to develop their talents in ways that contribute to collective evolution um reminding us that like these gifts and these talents are never are never we're not wired this way for self-gratification and for selfish uh, um, accumulation of wealth and resources at the expense of others. You know, like that's not what using intelligence is about. It's a, you know, it's a faulty premise to think that intelligence should be associated with, with wealth or money. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's systemic. Um, I'm sorry, I actually stopped quoting her and started going off on my own tangent. So that, like, some of this is not Jacobson, most of it was, but then I you went off and You know what? It was, it was all great. <laughs> no, it, and I, so it's funny that you, as you're trying to wrestle with that, because I don't understand it either as far as, and I've said this many times, I was made for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> like they were like quarantine up and I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to read and write and I'm going to create. And I haven't had a vacation in 20 years and I, and I'm fortunate enough and I feel really bad for people that are not, but yes. you know, but I've been living, you know, paycheck to paycheck for 20 years and to actually be able to be my partnership has been amazing, just absolutely amazing. And I'm going to pay it back tenfold, but you know, I have, I'm, I don't know how I had time for a full-time job. I really don't. And, right. and when people are like, oh my God, I can't wait for it to go back. I'm like, go back. You know, and, and I get Right? There's no going back. It's only going forward. Like, like that's like the anti-evolution experience as well. It's like, we know now 
that in any circumstance, we can only go forward knowing what we know and make it better, not go back to something that was broken. But, yeah, but, they don't, but, they, broken. Hold on, but you said, though, <laughs> do, do they think it was broken? You know, I mean, this is where we get into that thing of, um, did you think staring at your phone all day long and going to work and, and, sh- and, and shipping your kids off um, to, you know, one sport after another sport after another thing after another thing and actually not spending any time with them thinking. You know, that was one of the things right. that, that um, Alan Bloom was saying in his book is that we, we, take, our, we take our kids uh, on a trip. We take our kids to sporting events. We'll have dinner with them. We will, but we don't spend any time thinking with them. Or, or questioning the universe with them. And that's where people get, or young people start getting their... Uh, Lost. Right, right, well, what they're about. And I think that's something like, so now I'm going to keep going back to what you were saying that about your family, that you grew up in a family where it was open, but it sounds like you guys were thinking, right? I would definitely say that, you know... Uh, the, the, the traits are inherited, you know, like so um, quest for seeking, for knowledge, for understanding the world from um, from uh, from different generational perspectives. And so like my parents were rock and rollers and hippies um, and uh, Rastas, you know, like those are, that's my, that's my uh, those are the ideologies that shape some of my parents' experience in the world and pursuit of knowledge. And so, um, so, you know, on our shelves are, uh, all kinds of spiritual teachings, all kinds of approaches to uh, living in a world that doesn't um, that doesn't prioritize or value artists and creators and mystics in the way that we believe should be. You know, or like that we create support for all shapes and, exi- and ways of of being human and sharing information um, without without having to without having to make one less in order for another one to be, you know, like that, I think that's something that came from my family experience is that you don't need to put something in a lesser position because it's different from yours, even though the world will do that. I don't need to take that in as, um, as a, a lens with which to appraise something, you know.
cat named Easter. He says, will you ever learn? You're just an empty cage girl if you kill the bird. Why do we? Your conscience be your guide 
And, and I think that I, I want to read you a quote. I just found it actually mm-hmm. in this. And I think that's to do with what you just said. Um, the last two things we're talking about as far as people wanting it to go back and people making other people feel bad. I think this goes, and I think people make people make other people feel bad for their choices or the way they are mm-hmm. because they feel bad about themselves. What, what's that quote? Um, uh, hold on. Don't tell me. Wait for it. I am not who you think I am. You are who you think I am. So when someone is giving, they're basically, you know, projecting their own issues onto you and demonizing you to make themselves feel better. And I think that has to do with what Bloom calls uh, transitory togetherness. I just want to read this to you and I want to, and Mm -hmm. I know you got to go soon, so I don't don't want to. You know, overstay. Oh my gosh, I can't, the, the time flew by. I didn't even feel like this. Oh my gosh. Right, goes Enjoyed fast, this right? so much. All right, all right, yeah, here we, I appreciate so, that. So this is in a chapter called Clean Slate, and I really, and I dog ear and underline all my books, and, and you know, I'm, everyone's like, oh, you got another book. I love to read. That's mm-hmm. part of my OE, my narrow... Div, uh, div, Your intellectual OE is activated. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. so he says, the family has to be a sacred unity believing in the permanence of what it teaches. If its ritual and ceremony are to express and transmit the wonder of the moral law, which it alone is Mm -hmm. capable of transmitting and which makes it special in a world devoted to the humanly, all too humanly useful. When that belief disappears, as it has, the family has, at best, a transitory togetherness. People sup together, play together, travel together, but they do not think together. Hardly any homes have any intellectual life whatsoever, let alone one that informs the vital interests of life. Educational TV marks the high tide for family intellectual life. And I think that's, and this is in 84. This is 1984. This book came out, and I think that when he says the trends, and we've also now recoined the phrase with our phones, the t- to get together alone. But he was already saying transitory togetherness, where we're doing things together, but we're not having any real conversations. And the, what happened now? Let's go to quarantine. 
You're, you're quarantined with people you haven't had any real conversations with. All of a sudden, the real conversations start happening, and it's uncomfortable. Maybe right. I, maybe I don't like you. Doesn't mean I don't love you, but maybe I don't like my kid like this. Maybe I don't like my wife or my husband or my friend. And all of a sudden, you know what? Can we just go back? Can we just go back to work? So when we say things like, I want to go back or people want to get out of this, really I think what they're saying is, I just want to move where I don't have to deal with this. I don't want to have to confront me or, or what I'm thinking and feeling. It's better to stay busy. Uh, you know, but that's a, that's, a, that's a great illusion, right? Like it's one of those great illusions that we choose to buy into because it's easier. Relationships are complicated. They require energy, you know? And that, I think, is one of the uh, sad experiences of the Industrial Revolution by, bringing, by prioritizing work over people. You know, like when we start to look at work as what's valuable as opposed to raising children and being present as a parent or creating conversations that involve intimacy, that involve truth, that don't involve just conforming to ideals that are not even maybe sometimes connected or meaningful for an individual's experience. You know, um, and, and that example comes maybe through like, you know, we want you to choose a lucrative career. You should go to college for this. This is the way you have security. I love you. I want you to be safe. Right, but instead, it's like don't listen to your spirit. Move in this, these directions of security because economic security is what's going to be best for you. That message is, you know, it's not inherently malicious or malevolent, but the consequence of internalizing that message is whatever I have to offer that is not able to generate revenue isn't valuable. Yeah. 
And generating revenue is not an intellectual conversation. No, it's not. It's a construct. Again, it's like we're playing into, you know, now my, my, my being, my meaningful existence as a human being is going to be equated with a dollar amount, a piece of paper construct that we created again and decided is valuable, as opposed to recognizing that a person's ability to create art or make music or use their body in a way that is fulfilling and they're able to share with others or, um, or to use all of these talents in a way that makes them feel joyful because they're in line with their purpose. It might not be that they're going to be able to um, have a vacation house and travel internationally or whatever. Sometimes that's, that's not the trade. You know, sometimes the trade is for connecting in a way that feels real. Or sometimes the, the trade is sharing what you have to offer with others because it enhances and benefits the circle around you. And that... You can't put a dollar amount on, but, um, but, you know, just like in the family situation, we're not cultivating that if we're always out of the house focused on making sure that the mortgage is paid and our child, our, the children's childhood is passing by in that period of time. You know what I mean? Like that is a formative time to come together to teach them how to birth themselves and throughout the course of their life. And where do they learn that? They learn that from their parent models and their first attachment figures, um, I like human, like, um, my style of psychological, um, my style of therapy and my style of, of psychology is informed by humanistic and ex- existential uh, teachers. And um, one of the things that uh, Eric Fromm, he wrote like this book called Man for Himself, but one of the things that he would, would say about family and about people is that man's, um, forgive me if I butcher the quote, but it's like man's main task in life is to give birth to himself and to become what he potentially is. That's the most important product of his effort is his personality development. You know, and I think that is like quarantine is a beautiful gift to that experience. It's a pause on the rat race. It's a pause on what are we trading in exchange for financial and economic security? How much of our humanity is lost in these everyday decisions that, that move us away from our children or move us away from our partners or move us away from our family members and communicating with our friends? You know, when we're so exhausted by the effort that comes from generating revenue and economic security, what do we have left for what, what really gives meaning to life? And for some of us that are privileged enough to work in the fields that are in line with our talents and abilities and fulfilling in terms of work, like, you know, being able to work and have levels of heightened fulfillment in the work zone, um, we still have the duty and the uh, expectation or the responsibility to be present for the role of parenting, which is not supervision, which is not provision of techno nannies through video games and cell phones and access to social media. It is provision of the space to explore deep questions and to feel your feelings and to know that you're safe in that place of human experience that you were brought into by these individuals called family. You know, and obviously I could hear the idealism that I have in my expectations of family members and family roles. Uh, but, um, but I think it gets lost. It gets lost. And when you see, you know, when children are asking why repeatedly at 6 o'clock in the morning, you know, like it's hard sometimes to be like, you know, to want to have the mental energy or the emotional energy to sit and be present and create space for that curiosity and that imagination. But it's a duty of parenting to create that space for a person to learn how to reflect, 
and to be able to critically question and think for themselves instead of just being obedient and um, absorbing information without questioning it, which is like clearly what we see that there's a detrimental impact on humanity when we cultivate that way of being. I would say the quarantine is a beautiful opportunity to watch if you uh, have the ability to tolerate the news at all. Every time you watch these days, you will see um, uh, the question, like the, the problem that happens in a species or in our society when we don't critically think for ourselves, when we don't question these concepts and investigate or self-examine or examine concepts, period. You know, like there's, there's, a, there's an unsafe, at, worst, at best it's unsafe and, you know, it doesn't involve the population to move them forward. At worst, it could contribute to, you know, an extinction event by uh, ignoring basic safety universal precautions to prevent the spread of a lethal illness. You know, like it's not rocket science. It's actually Wikipedia available. Like, so it's, it's, um, it's really important that we are using the time of childhood to help individuals hold on to their own autonomy, hold on to their authenticity and to cultivate deeper reflective philosophical thinking. It's their birthright to have that space. And yet, a lot of culture has emphasized instead, you know, be seen and not heard, be obedient, um, equating uh, being born as being naturally sinful or unclean at birth. These are these are, are these are anti-advancing principles to exist under. You know, the, the, that level of control and conforming to that level of um, limit and questioning. It's a, it's a huge disadvantage to a thinking being and a sentient being. And um, I think that this opportunity is very dividing or very clarifying in terms of seeing what happens when you stop thinking for yourself and you allow... Um, uh, oh, I'm really trying hard to be, like, politically correct in this situation. Don't but I'm be politically like, correct. I'm just like, like, like that, that corporate company culture of profit over people. When, we're, when we are, when, when these things are getting intertwined with normalcy or, or accept, like acceptable ways of existing in society, we are devolving and we are disadvantaging our future and our planet and our children and their children and their species as a whole. And it's, like, it's a wake-up call, being in quarantine and recognizing, oh my gosh, there's tension, there's unspoken, there's unspoken and abandoned hurts that have happened in a family unit by default because of neglect that happens from the demands of participating in the workforce, you know? And it's not by intention, you know? Like sometimes it's it, it just you have, to, you have to intentionally create and cultivate and carve out and value that time for people to, for oneself even, like just to be able to read and self-reflect and philosophize and make an, have an opinion that's not, um, you know, yeah, but you hold on. But, but you, authentic but you in the midst of all these sound bites, you know. But also, well, well Avra, you just children. said it though. Well, you just said though. You can't philosophize and ruminate and think back if you're filling every space in your mind with with stuff, right? Yeah. And all your stuff, right? If you're constantly being distracted, you have to leave time and space to process. But when mm-hmm. we decide, right, the, the joke is the information age has so much information that we, we, we're paralyzed. We, can't, we right. can't do that. We cannot philosophize. And we cannot 
or we refuse to shut those things out. And it's and listen, I'm it's difficult for me. You know, there are times that I'm just like, oh man, I just want to binge watch like this show. It's so good right now. And I, I sit up till one o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, that was dumb because now I get up <laughs> at six, and I feel like crap for the next two days. And it's a reminder. But that's not, I also recognize that's not my way of life. And I think we, our society and the global society has gotten really good at feeling bad that you get, it becomes the norm where your eyes mm. hurt and you feel sluggish and you're not, you know, so you can't. You're not fully living. What's that? You're not fully living. You're not fully participating in your own humanity. No. And, and there's no way you're going to think about anything deep or, or fulfilling or introspective if you're completely distracted all the time and I, and I, and I I think that's where, why movements need to happen. And I, and and I'm going to wrap up and I'm saying, I'm concerned that we've hit a point where there will be no other musical movement to make people say, Hey, or another March or another, I have a dream speech or I have, you know, uh, conscientious objectors that are saying, no, this has got to stop, that we're outnumbered. You know, I don't know if that's, it can happen. I'm concerned. I really am. And, and it worries me. You know, I, it's, it is, a, you know, and being an, being an outlier in terms of intensities, it is a healthy worry to have. But, you know, on the flip side of that, nihilistic fear that, uh, stories will not be told and we will lose our teachers or the, you know, like, I, I I just know that it's it's that's not the way of humanity. We are storytellers. We are creators. We are innovators by design. We are um, meant to break the boundaries of confinement in order to continue to live and survive in the planet. And change is the only constant that can be predicted and, and planned for, you know. And the resistance to change is synonymous with death and extinction. We have to adapt to survive. And this experience of adapting to a new normal, of recognizing that the rat race isn't the way of, of, of moving forward as a species, as moving forward as a collective group, as it's not fulfilling and it's destructive to um, the blossoming of the human spirit over time, or it's destructive to the family bonds and to the connections that we have in society. Um, we have to recognize that this is a wake-up call. And um, another quote that I might like to close you with or like to... Um, sure. Oh, man, there's, there's so many. Like, I'm like, now that I'm thinking humanistic existential, I'm like, oh, my guy, Fritz Pearls, my guy. Um, Take us out. Take us uh, out. Final, final wisdom from Dr. Amber Silo. Hit, hit us. So Fritz Pearls talks about therapy, and he says that the task of therapy is the great awakening, the coming to one's senses, the peak experiences that cause one to start to see, to feel, to experience one's needs and satisfactions instead of playing roles. Um, and that there's, there's no meaning to life except for the meaning that man gives to his life by the unfolding of his powers. If we are in this time of quarantine, of opportunity for reconnection with our loved ones, for reconnection with our inner selves, for a reassessment of what's working for us in our lives, what's not working for us in our lives. We have the opportunity to use this time of reflection to grow and expand and and, and become the better version of ourselves or to idea to dream about what does it look like for me to go forward uh, from this point today and 
bring my best self to the table? What does that look like to me? What will that feel like? What do I want it to feel like? Um, and creating space for those seeds to be nourished in this quarantine experience before the wheels start turning again in a way that compromises the time and the peace and the pause for that birth to be happening to one's inner self. Um, I think that's a beautiful gift that we can continue to, to, to take energy and take support and take nourishment from rather than the moments when we feel uh, terror about extinction or um, fear about contamination or um, disillusionment with leadership or disillusionment with uh, division in our, across groups. You know, like, yes, those things are hard and those days hurt and we're all shouldering it, you know, whether we recognize it or not, you know, we're all part of this of this universe together, and we can't go forward hurting our our hurt our earth, our habitat, and each other without there being a tremendous consequence. And this moment in time is a historical reference period to reevaluate how we're going to go forward, and to do it with dignity and integrity, and honesty and transparency, and virtue as opposed to. Uh, self-indulgence and narcissism and and emphasis over and profit over people you know i think this is this effort like i mean i'm not one for like the um oh i'll, I'll stop there i was i was gonna say like pro-life over pro-choice like this is the first this is the real pro-life movement right now but um i realize that that's pretty no no it's not though. <laughs> no it's not i think it, no and i think that's a good way to put it pro-life pro-change and, and looking inward and making the change even though a lot of people may not. And can you do that? And if, and if, if, and, if, and that feels very, to be honest with you, that feels like a punk movement to me. That, that's what that feels like. <laughs> that, that's what this yes, is. Yes, you know, right? like hopefully those of us that are able to um, survive, survive corona are able to carry on this message, you know, because um, uh, it's, it's pivotal to the ongoing um, hope for betterment of our beings and connection and um, and yeah I just want like, like just to go back to when people are running out into uh, or changing legal precedents so that companies can force employees to come back to work in unsafe situations for minimum wage at the cost of their health or when we recognize that as a country we are going to be facing tremendous unemployment over the next 12 to 18 months as a result of this epidemic. And that most of our, our, our individual citizens, are uh, their health care is tied to employment. And if we are losing people, employment, they're going to be disadvantaged by not having health care in a time of a global contagious airborne viral pandemic. We have to be better. We have to come back to the drawing board and look at, you know, we can, we, can, we can look at all these other models, fascism, socialism, communism, democracy. We can look at them and we can improve on what we know and create something new as opposed to rigidly adhering to out, outdated models that don't fit anymore what's happening. Um, and I think that's something that hopefully some of the generation that's coming up in this period of time is absorbing and recognizing and thinking about as they listen to the ludicrous uh, mishandling of of this situation with, with Corona, but also like everything else that's occurring in terms of the planets being decimated and uh, and people being unprotected 
you know, like this, we have a responsibility to protect each other. If we're talking about the herd mentality, we are meant to survive in group, not to survive in individualism. You know, we're not, we're meant to be collectively connected, not individually self-indulgent and using our power to advance our individual interest at the cost of others. That's not, that's not the way of evolving in nature. And it's not sustainable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated this conversation. Pro-life, pro-punk, no. pro right there. I mean, <laughs> I, I, we're, namaste. Sorry, <laughs> namaste. No, I, listen, I, I appreciate you taking the time and doing this. And um, I would love to speak to you again some, some other time and, and delve into positive disintegration because that's a whole other level of levels <laughs> going somewhere. Yeah. Um, so, awesome, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Listen, have a great weekend. Um, you too. And I will talk to you more formally next week. <laughs> okay. Listen, looking forward to it. Have a great, have a great weekend. You as well. You're the best. Thank you bye so bye. much. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to you. Thanks to you, listeners too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Oh